Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Trichel with part two of my interview with Todd Miller on Silicon Valley Bank, interest rate risk, liquidity risk, and model risk, and NCUA's response to it. I've broken this into three parts because uh, I try and keep my podcasts to around 30 minutes. In this episode, Todd speaks about model risk, interest rate risk, and credit risk, and other things, but mostly focuses on those three things. And on model risk. What do we know about models? We know that they're wrong. The assumptions are wrong, but Todd will get into that. And without further ado, here is Todd Miller of my team. FYI, he was a former capital market specialist at NCUA for roughly 10 years, and then the last 10 years was a director of special actions and assisted me when we conserved Westcore. But that's a story for another podcast. All right, here's Todd. We talked about models and decision tools. We talked about one version of the truth. I kind of tiptoed in, into enterprise risk management. That, that kind of leads us to model risk mitigation. So you've got all these models. Todd, I know you've got some thoughts on how to mitigate the risk on the models. I what do. You- and these are very much going to be enterprise risk management related processes. You know, the first thing that any institution needs to do is they really need to inventory all the models they're using for decision-making because I think it's somewhat interesting that a lot of organizations, if you sat down and asked one person to list them all, they probably can't list them all. They don't know what the other hands are doing in other departments and branches out there. And so I think one of the first steps to model risk mitigation is actually inventorying those models and categorizing the risk of each one. Let's be honest on how some of these models are used. Some models are strictly for regulatory purposes. You have a lot of your BSA type modeling and and that type of thing. That's strictly for regulatory compliance. You have these Humda models to pay attention for discrimination. A lot of that is regulatory compliance. Other models like your Allen model and your budget tools and your cash flow tools, those are being used to drive your business strategy and decision making. So they're all critical, but they have different levels of criticality. And institutions really need to be honest with themselves, which of their models drive their decisions with respect to risk and reward? Which ones are compliance related? Those are also important. Which models are strictly tools for regulatory compliance? And then we talked earlier about all these models have huge costs. And you once you are able to categorize your models and determine which ones are the most risky or the ones that drive your decisions the most, those are the ones you need to spend resources on for model validation. I mean, the critical models that drive your risk reward decisions, you need to spend resources to validate those models and, there's, and the processes of how you use them. The other thing, and I think this is one that really catches a lot of institutions by surprise, especially with non-maturity shares, they don't think about this, but, you know, 
All of these models are simplistic versions of reality and reality is pretty complex. And really every model user needs to have some, I will call it informed conservatism with respect to their model assumptions. There needs to be a healthy thought process amongst all users that what if our assumptions about this are wrong? What's the consequences for making decision A versus decision B if our model's wrong? And if it's wrong, do we have a fall black plan exit strategy later on to respond to it if it proves to be wrong? And I think a lot of that conservatism is not there in most organizations. I think there's a lot of end users, especially of ALM type models that don't really understand everything going on within them. I think that's true with regulators who are reviewing them as well. And that informed conservatism just needs to be there. I think those people responsible for actually managing risk, which are pretty much your whole executive team, they need to effectively challenge the results of their models. Is it output consistent with past experiences? Those models all tell a story. And is that story really consistent with, they'll tell a story about your past results and where you're going, but they have to ask themselves is, is that story really consistent with our mission statement and our past business plans? And if it isn't, why isn't it? There needs to be some really hard reckoning of, what's going on there. And I think one of the biggest issues with many people is, and many management teams is they're looking at summaries of model results and not digging into the details. And the summaries kind of justify what they want to do. It justifies where they think they're going and not looking into details. They're kind of missing the whole story and missing where some of their risks really are. Well, and so, you know, when I, when I, when I hear what you just kind of summarized, it, it informed conservatism, you know, I, I, I'm thinking back to some of the other conversations we've had. And if you've got, if you've got, you know, you're challenging your model to say, okay, I'm going to stress, I'm going to stress test something to 30%, just picking, just picking a number. Well, it, it, and it, that 30% stress shows that everything's okay. Well, what if I double it? Uh, what if I triple it? Or what if I what if I do that and two other variables are changing at the same time? So that's that's one way in my head I can frame up maybe having a little bit more of conservatism. Another way in my head I think about it is okay, well, this shows what I want. How do I break it? How do I break this model in a way that what do I have to do to get a what in my in my mind would would be a ridiculous outcome? Because Silicon Valley Bank was. I'm sure they thought that was a ridiculous outcome, right? What are the odds that all the deposits are going to leave or that 40% or 50% is going to leave? And then if that happens and we try and float capital, that that's not going to work. So, I mean, that was black swan theoretically. It was, it was number one, it was violation of ALM 101, but all those things had to happen. And so does, does what, any, any thoughts relative to what I just said, relative to informed conservatism and maybe breaking a model or having different elements, the different variables change so that you're not just getting a report that gives you the thumbs up that you were looking for so that you can put it in a file. And when NCUA comes in, they look at the file and they go away. Well, my next slide actually talks about this a little bit or the next bullet point on this slide for people that go pull the slide presentation off of your page eventually. 
But backtesting, sensitivity analysis, and scenario analysis are all ways to mitigate model risk. They're all three important, and institutions need to know the difference and why resources are being spent on each. Now, one of the things you see with concentration risk in, in loans and shares and things of that nature, a lot of times your examiners will be saying, hey, how do you justify this concentration risk? Well, you do that with scenario analysis, just like you said, and figure out where does our institution break? Where do our capital levels fall below regulatory minimums? And what scenarios does it take to do that? And those are useful tools to understand just conditions that can cause your capital to be depleted before regulatory limits. But it's also a part of your decision support system. And you can use that to figure out your concentration risk levels. And, you know, at the end of the day, and this is on a later slide, but I'll just bring it up now. At the end of the day, when institutions fail, outside of the small number of institutions that fail due to fraud, most of the times it's concentration risk of some time of some kind that gets them in trouble. You know. Great point. Great point. And the SVP thing, yeah. I mean, I so like you look at NCU, I used to keep a history of all our conservatorships and how much deposits would outflow. I mean, I used to have a list of every single one when I was a DSA. And, you know, even in our conservatorships, typically we would lose between 10 and 30% of deposits. And in some institutions that happened in one month and some on the longer term conservatorships, it would take a whole year. You know, SVP lost a bigger percentage than that in one day. One day. And so, and I'm sure that, you know, not only did management think that couldn't happen, I'm pretty sure the regulators and the examiners sitting in there and responsible for monitoring that bank, not that they didn't make mistakes, but I think in their minds, they didn't envision a scenario where that would happen either. Sure. No, good point. So, well, there's a lot of blame. We have a slide on, you know, blame. <laughs> we we do. We you do. Know, so some of this blame is maybe assigned unfairly in some respects. And, and that's kind of one of them. You don't envision that. But it's also a good reason why when you're doing scenario tests and stress tests, you should go try and envision those things. That's right. Nope. Great point. So I think the next slide we have here, slide number 12, interest rate risk. Any, any thoughts that we should highlight here on, on the interest rate risk side of this discussion? Yeah, we'll bring up a couple things. You know, your last podcast with Mark, he talked a lot about this, but we've gotten surge deposits twice over the last recession and then again during COVID. And I think it really distorted Credit Union's decision-making, the deposits that came in during the last recession. A lot of your ALM practitioners coined the term surge deposits to describe them. And people said, hey, let's take steps to isolate them, keep track of them. In some credit unions, those surge deposits went out the door over a period of three or four years. Other credit unions, they all stayed there. Well, then we get to COVID, and then we have a long period of time with very low interest rates from 2009 until just right before COVID, they started lowering interest rates or raising interest rates, but they plummeted again during COVID. But we had another huge surge of deposits, over 20% growth there for a couple of years during COVID, 20% one year and 13% the next year. 
in COVID. And it created, you know, a lot of credit unions thinking last time with these SERS deposits, they were kind of under the mistaken belief that they would stay and that this deposit growth would continue. The other thing that deposit growth did with those COVID surges is even though they weren't paying very much for deposits, it drove down earnings because your loan to share ratio just plummeted because of this deposit growth. And then credit unions, well, our loan to share ratio is down, our earnings dropped from 90 basis points over the last three years to 70 basis points. I'm sure the boards are you know, jumping on CEOs and their compensation plans, your earnings are falling. How do we get that back? The long-term rates weren't expected to rise the way they did. So credit unions went out there and they kept share rates low and they lowered loan rates. And after COVID, deposit growth plummeted down into single digits. And being as they never raised, and that's because they didn't raise share rates along with interest rates. Well, they didn't raise loan rates either. So loan rates after COVID or loan growth expanded to over 20%. And a lot of it is because credit unions underpriced their loans. They didn't raise loan rates. So their loans grew really rapidly. The other thing credit unions did during that same time is the ones that didn't have loan demand at all, they went and put their securities in longer term buckets. And then when rates rose, now they've got losses on their investments. And then a strange thing kind of happened along the way. So members who have not really cared about deposit rates started caring about deposit rates. And now borrowing costs went up and deposits went up. And here's kind of this old experience thing, you know, back in the early 2000s, I was with a model vendor, I won't say who, but they had data on a large percentage of the largest banks in the US. And one of the things their old model said, People will not move money to go from one to 2%, but they'll move money to go from four to four and a quarter. So we have these low rates where members were indifferent and now rates are up in that four or 5%. Members are no longer indifferent. And like I said, they're still being punished because for 10 years, their savings haven't kept up with inflation. And so now they're paying attention, but all our institutions, they have all these non-maturity deposit models and the regulators tell them, you got to have current information. What's going on in the last three years? What's going on in the last four years? Well, that represents a period of low rates where members are indifferent. So all their models are telling them that they don't have to change rates. They're fine. But their models are very precise and they're precisely wrong. And that's why Cridings went out there and Oh, you just muted, Todd. You just went on mute. I hit the button as I was moving papers and I put a pen down by my mouse and my cursor that, happened. That'll do it. That'll do it. Well, we have a graph in our podcast. It goes just and it lays out funding structures and LTVs over different periods. And I think it's very pertinent because what's happening today is we're just reverting to the mean. If you look at prior to 2009, almost 30%, about 33% of deposits were in certificates or borrowed money and non-member deposits. You always had this high percentage of people that was non-rate sensitive 
or that were very rate sensitive. So your non-maturity shares back then were around 60%. Then you go from that last recession, I mentioned the surge deposits due to government assistance after the last recession in 2009. So from 2009 to 2017, those non-maturity deposits spiked up to like 65% of a credit union's total funding. And when I say total funding, I mean all your shares, all your borrowed money, all your non-member deposits. Then we get COVID and that spikes that non-maturity share number up to 78%. And if you go look at a lot of these non-maturity share monies, they say if you're getting growth in non-maturity shares, well, that extends their maturity and it proves their longer term the way a lot of people do the math. And so credit unions do that math and it's like our shares have longer values and banks do this too. So the premiums are bigger and that's kind of offsetting all our market losses due to devaluations in our investments and loans. But then you get into 2022. So their models are telling them their decisions are all fine. The fact Everything's they, fine, remain calm. <laughs> yeah, the fact that they extended their real estate loans that they bought longer term investments, their models all say it's fine. But then we hit this magic 2022 and rates start rising and then we start getting reversions to the means. Rates go up. Members start paying attention. Share growth is dropping. All of a sudden, credit unions are finding that the banks out there are offering certificates 4%, 5%. And so in one year, you know, the mature, non-maturity shares drop from like 78 to 72. And I guarantee you that number is going to go way lower here in 2023. Yeah. NCUA didn't have aggregate numbers for the first quarter available, or I would have included them in this presentation. But I guarantee you we're going to see a reversion to the mean. And I know even back in when I was a supervisor of capital market specialists in 2015, 2016, we were telling credit to go model your share structure from the last recession. Can you handle a situation where 30 percent of your deposits are hot money? That was in the Western region and just my staff. I don't think it was a uniform NCUA thing, but it was something that I would tell people to do. But, you know, and like I said, the regulators encouraged a lot of this. They told people, hey, make your non-maturity share deposits current. Update your models. Well, they do. And their models tell them because of the government, you know, throwing all this money at them during COVID, it's telling them that their non-maturity shares have very long lives. And now they're finding out that that is not necessarily the case. And, and, and one of the things we've discussed on other podcasts and or with, with, some, with some credit unions is the, the impact that, that inflation, we've talked about inflation here today, the impact inflation has on not being able to grow your shares because the people are spending the money, right? The, the, the savings rate has gone down at the yeah. same time. One of the things I talked to when we were talking to the group of chief risk officers, one of the things we had in the slide presentation for them is no one has inflation rates built into a non-maturity share model because those inflation rates really haven't existed since, and I have to go back to my earlier slide because I don't have it memorized, but we really haven't seen this level of inflation since the late 1980s. Right. So it's been a non-issue for 40 years and now it is an issue and especially your mid-level consumers you know middle class the inflation has hit them really hard 
Yeah. And so that's impacted deposit growth too. And like I said, no one has that involved in their models assessment, but it played a big role in not only the fact that you had low share growth, but it played a big role in why credit unions were able to grow their loans so fast. People needed access to, right. um, they didn't have the cash for stuff anymore. And credit unions just grew their loans fast because they underpriced it. So when you underprice something, well, you're going to sell more of it. So it, it's just somewhat interesting to look at all of that, the way that loan to share ratio has been very volatile and it's all because of that government assistance. And, you know, a lot of institutions made the premise that those surge deposits from COVID would remain because a lot of the surge deposits in the last recession did remain. These did. Of course, they were a lot larger this time around than they were last time, too. True. They, were, True. they were more immediate. If you look at the government deficit, almost all the COVID assistance happened in one quarter, and it was like $3 trillion added to our deficit just in one quarter of COVID assistance. And I mean, everybody got assistance, unemployed, workers, businesses, corporations. I mean, it was a massive amount of assistance. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine why we had inflation with all that money that was printed, but that's a that's a story for another day. It well, was either inflationary or deflationary, so we got inflation. Think about it in these terms: that COVID assistance is ten percent of our total deficit that exists today. Out of that thirty-one trillion, ten percent of it came in one quarter during COVID. Wow! Wow! That's a that's it's a big number that was thrown out. It's a big number. Yeah. Well, go go ahead. This kind of an interesting piece, and this is worth throwing out because we've mentioned SVP and we'll talk about it a little bit later too, is the whole large depositors and uninsured share deposit issue. The banks with large uninsured shares are the ones that seem to be getting hit the most, either in stock price or in the case of SVP, an actual failure. Well, you know, the banks and credit structures are very different. Banks, almost 45% of their deposits are uninsured. In credit unions, it's 9%, a little under 9% actually. And it's somewhat interesting. I think that number has actually gone down over my career. When deposit insurance was still at the $100,000 level, I used to track it. And it used to run around 13 14%. And it's actually come down with the 250000 So, you know, credit unions, that uninsured share deposit is a different animal than what it is in the banking industry. Now, that said, individual credit unions, they should all know who their large depositors are. I have lots of stories of large depositors impacting a single credit union in a very material way where they've had to go borrow money just to fund a depositor who's lacked. So... You know, credit unions don't have that systemic amount of large depositors, but there's a lot of individual credit unions that do have some large depositors that they should be paying attention to. All, all great points. If credit unions look vastly different. Chairman Todd Harper made that point on, on Capitol Hill last week, which is good for credit unions. But as you said, you got to be aware of your biggest depositors. And it'll be interesting. I know that FDIC proposed some changes to, to potentially, you know, do we keep the insured limits where they're at or are there some other things that we do? And 
it'll be interesting to see what might happen in that regard moving forward. It won't happen quickly because it'll take an act of Congress for there to be changes in the deposit structure, insured deposit structure. Yeah, I'll, I'll just tell like one story and you might choose to take it out of the podcast and about knowing who your large depositors are and, and knowing across your management team. So I had one credit and I won't say where. A member certificate got automatically renewed and they thought it shouldn't. And the member kind of complained to the branch manager. And this whole dispute is over about $500 of interest. And so the manager takes it to the CFO. They kind of side with the, the credit union that, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. Gets appealed to the board. The board sides with the branch manager and their decision. Along that whole discussion, no one told anyone that this depositor had two and a half million dollars in the credit union. And he took it all out. And they only had about a million dollars in their corporate account. So they had to go borrow a million and a half dollars. And that whole $500 dispute cost them about three times that much in interest on borrowed money just in a single day. So it's important you know who these people are when you're making decisions and and you have contact with them and you take that into context. And, you know, we're seeing that now with a lot of our clients, you know, people are paying attention now to their large depositors. You give some different rate authority to people to deal with them as you need to. But large depositors are still important in the credit industry and they need to keep track of them as well. So, Todd, similar story about a blue collar worker who came in after a long day at work and was a, you know, his sleeves were rolled up and, and needed to go home and take a shower, but he stopped at the credit union along the way and for, for a particular service and he wanted to get his parking validated. And whatever service that person went in for, they didn't validate parking. So he complained to the manager. The manager complained to the vice president. Same thing. Nobody checked. Who is this guy? And he had $20 million in. And he said, that's fine. You don't have to validate my parking. He goes and started to walk away. He goes, but I'd like to close my account. And that's when they said they'd validate his parking. But it was too late. So (laughs) those large depositors, you got to know who they are and be in contact with them and just so it's an awareness thing within your whole risk management and management process. So interest rate risk takeaways, and you know, we'll just talk about the interest rate risk model specifically and kind of takeaways from that. You know, those interest rate risk models, your NEV kind of tells you a story about your past. And is that story really consistent with what your past business plans and assumptions were? That informed conservative. It has to be there with your ALM models. Effective challenge of assumptions has to be there. And when it comes to non-maturity share assumptions, there's something everyone has to realize is everyone is wrong. I don't care what assumptions you have. They're wrong. The real answer is unknowing. You have different buckets that are going to behave differently. You can spend millions of dollars to try and model those different buckets differently. You're still going to be wrong. So maybe that millions of dollars is not money well spent because you're still going to be wrong. You know, we talked about inflation. No one has inflation as a variable in their non-maturity share studies. It played a huge impact in the last year. So it doesn't matter. They're going to be wrong. Scenario analysis and challenge your assumptions and 
as you make risk management decisions about how you're going to reposition your balance sheet in the future, you really do need to think through what if our assumptions are wrong. And really, those discussions need to be documented in your ELCO minutes, not just kind of an esoterical thing on the side. That record of that discussion needs to be there. And what are you going to do if you're wrong needs to be openly discussed and thought out as well. These models have very precise numbers. You know, we're down to hundreds of a percentage point. And so they're very precise, but you just have to remember they're precisely wrong. How big of the world are they in in terms of accuracy? You know, are we wrong 10%, 20%, 30%? We should have some window of where that is, but we need to always understand that, especially the NEV models, they're always wrong. They do a good job of telling you magnitude and direction of risk, but in absolute terms, they're wrong. They'll always be wrong, and you can't know the right answer. The second piece of it is spend resources to model where you're going. Put those strategic plans in your model. Figure out what your earnings and NEB numbers are going to look like a year from now, not just today or two months ago. Where are they going to be in the future? That's probably more important than figuring out where they were in the past. With the ALM models, you need to be really transparent with those end users regarding those assumptions and how those assumptions impact results. You know, everyone on that ELCO committee looking at making decisions really needs to have a basic understanding of that. And if they don't, somehow you need to bring that to them. And we can talk about that a little bit later when we get into the SVP lessons learned. Committee minutes, it needs to reflect discussions of those decision drivers with respect to balance sheet strategy, risk reward, decisions need to be taken in a manner where we know what we're doing and why. And way back at the beginning, I mentioned fund transfer pricing models. You know, institutions should know when they're making pricing decisions of how they're making money. Are they making money by taking interest rate risk or making money by taking credit risk? Those are two very different things and they should really know what they're doing and why. And I think for many credits, they probably don't because they price to the market and they get the risk the market gives them because they haven't really analyzed it. The last thing I would just say in terms of interest rate risk models, but this is very crucial. At the very least, if you don't have a full enterprise risk management system, at the very least, you need to manage interest rate, liquidity, and credit risk together. Those three things are so interrelated, you cannot manage those three things in silos. As much as your lending staff would like to, you know, they all have incentive for growing the loan portfolio. They want low rates. Doesn't matter. You need to bring the rest of the balance sheet metrics in line with your credit risk and manage those three things together. All right. Well, Todd said you have to keep interest rate risk, credit risk, and liquidity risk all looked at, not in silos, and looked at together. However, our podcast is too long to do that, so tomorrow you will hear about liquidity risk and more. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors.
thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktrichel.com. 